Hello, I'm Nicole Abadie and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Welcome to today's episode of Books, Books, Books. Today I'm delighted to welcome Lisa Goldberg, spokeswoman for the Monday Morning Cooking Club, a group of super talented friends who have together launched three fabulous cookbooks. Today we're going to talk about their fourth and latest, Now for Something Sweet, published by HarperCollins in April this year and about a subject very close to my heart, and that is baking. Lisa is originally from Melbourne and she used to be a solicitor. She's now lived in Sydney for some years. She is the chief pot stirrer of the Monday Morning Cooking Club. We're going to hear a little bit about them later. With them, she's the joint author of four glorious cookbooks, which have won the hearts of cooks all over the world. The latest, Now for Something Sweet, has endorsements from Yotam Ottolenghi, Nigella Lawson, Bill Granger and Helen Goh. It doesn't get much better than that in cookbook land. Lisa describes herself as a fresser, and that I've discovered is one who eats with joy and abandon. So Lisa, you are a woman after my own heart, and I'm delighted to welcome you to the show. Thank you. Thanks, Nicole. Lovely to be here. Now, I'd like to ask you to start by reading from um, one of the early pages of the cookbook. Okay. It's actually my second favourite part of the book, I must say. Okay. Um, There's something about the Jewish community and cake. We are always dreaming of soft, airy, pale chiffon cake, thinking about chocolate swirled, glossy, yeasted babka, imagining flaky, chewy, jammy strudel, baking almond-studded, citrus-glazed Dutch buns, frying golden, syrup-drenched, coiled fishwalers, biting into hot, sugared, jam-filled doughnuts, eating crisp-shelled, marshmallowy, vanilla-flecked meringues, feasting on sticky, steaming, sweet butterscotch pudding and sharing it all with abundance and love. We've been on a mission, a quest, a non-stop search to uncover, to to persistently test and tweak and to preserve the many sweet recipes entrusted to us over our years of collecting. And here we have it, our conscientiously curated selection of sweet recipes we love the most, from Jewish homes across Australia and around the world. This is not an encyclopedic collection. These are simply the recipes we are most excited to share and the ones you'll catch us eating straight from the tray, tin, bowl, jar in the corner of the kitchen again and again. I have to say if that and this cookbook as a whole don't send you racing to the kitchen to get out (laughs) your baking tools, I don't know what will. Lisa, could you start by telling our listeners a little bit about the Monday Morning Cooking Club? What is it and how did you get started? So we're in our 15th year, which is very hard to believe. Like we look at each other and say, 15, how is that even possible? I don't know where the time went. But we got together back then to write a cookbook for charity. That was the idea. Natanya, one of my co-authors, came to me and said, let's do a cookbook. And I said, sure, let's talk about it. And we sort of decided that, you know, we all had school-aged kids and we all had been through those ring-binder, spiral-bound books that they that every school sells and they're fantastic. And we decided we didn't want that. So we wanted to do something bigger and better. Not better, just bigger, I think. Um, and my dream at that point, it was the time of Borders, okay? So I used to go into Borders and 
ogle all the cookbooks. And I said, what I want is a cookbook that can sit in borders on the shelf let, let next to Neil Perry. That, that was what I said at the time. And um, that's where we started. So we sat down and we thought, well, how do we, how do, we do that? We've got no idea. We're all home cooks. We all have various professions. We had no idea how to write a book. So we decided that we needed to decide what was, what was going to be in the book. And that was actually the easy part because what we wanted to do was we wanted to share the best recipes from the best cooks in the Jewish community in Sydney. Um, something about our community, which I have to tell you, which I'm sure you've picked up already, is that we are completely obsessed with food. Everything we do, whether it's the festivals or the family occasions or the Friday night dinners, it's, it's to me, it's only about the food, but it really is always about the food. So we wanted to get, um, you know, you go for afternoon tea somewhere and you'll have a chocolate cake and everyone will ooh and ah over it and then you'll ask the host for the recipe and you'll take it home and, you know, you'll make it for two, three years and then suddenly it's going to be your cake, right? And people are going to say, you know, Nicole, can you make your chocolate cake? And it's suddenly yours. So we wanted to find those recipes that people pass around and that people pass on, people have made from their mothers and their grandmothers. Um, we wanted that collection. So that's where we started. And it sort of evolved just from the first collection for the first book into this amazing snapshot of a community where we collected not just the stories, but also not just the recipes, I should say, but also the stories of that recipe and the person who gave it to us. So that's the start. And we took it, five years to write our first book. Going back to the group of you, I think, was it six of you to start with? Yeah, we were six. Were you friends already? Um, I played basketball. You must will, will find very funny if you know that I'm only five foot tall. I played basketball with Natanya. I knew Marilyn from kindergarten with our kids. Jackie and I were in play group together. Um, and I knew Paula and Lauren, they were friends. So sort of, you know, some friends and some acquaintances. And we just decided everyone brought a skill to the table at the time, the skills that we thought we needed going forward. And you all met in your kitchen, and I think you still do. Could you describe your kitchen yeah, to yeah. us? Um, I'm lucky it's big. Um, I've got a huge island in the middle of the kitchen, so there's lots of space for lots of people around it. But I must say, when, when we were all cooking six in the kitchen, there were times when I just said, it's not big enough, you know, it's still not big enough. And I'm lucky I've got two ovens, I've got lots of space and lots of sink space. And so it was the perfect, um, really, choice to start there. And, and that's where we started in March 2006, and we have been there ever since. And would people bring their own equipment over? So, for example, on a baking day, does everybody bring their Mixmasters over? So you've got six Mixmasters going in the kitchen at the one time? No. In the beginning, we started with the one Mixmaster that I had. And then over the years, we added to the collection. And now now we have two. Um, it, it sort of has grown over the years to what we need. But we never needed more equipment. We just needed sometimes we would decide on a Sunday what we were going to cook because the thing that we we pride ourselves on is that we don't just take recipes from people or from our families and just put them in the book. You know, we really carefully test them and mm. may have to tweak them and may have to retest and, you know, over and over again. Tell us a bit so, about that testing process because it is yeah. one of, it, you say you pride yourselves on it. It yeah. is one of the um, things that you're known for, that, that mm. you do this um, very, very careful recipe testing. Tell us a little yeah. bit about that process. It goes into, uh, we've got this amazing fo uh, folder system. We work with Google Drive. First book we didn't, it was all, I don't know how we did the first book. I mean, it was so many years ago. But now we work on Google Drive and we've got folders. So the recipe comes in, it goes into the to try folder. 
And someone, we'll all, we'll all troll through that every week and we'll decide, let's make these on Monday. Let's do the four apple cakes. Um, and during the week, we'll each dip into that folder and try something that appeals to us and then come to the Monday meeting with, look, I've made this, let's try it. Uh, but mostly we make a decision on, on Saturday or Sunday what we're going to try and we divide the shopping errands and this one does that and that one does this. And we all arrive at 10 o'clock on a Monday morning and then we cook. And do you all cook something you know, um, different, Lisa, or do you all cook the same thing? Different. We, we never all cook the same thing at the same time. We sometimes right. share the jobs in the one dish or we do something different, each of us. It depends what it is. And, like, for example, when we had to try, um, I think it was eight plum cakes that we got, um, there really is something about the Jewish community in cake. I don't know what it is. So three of us made one on the one Sunday that we would bring and the rest we made on the morning. And then we sat down at the end of the day, end of the day, two o'clock with, with numbers on all of them. So we didn't know which one was which and tasted them and passed it around and tasted them. And it's quite a hard job. Like people say, Oh, you know, I wish I could do that. But after, honestly, after the third cake, you just can't even eat cake anymore. Is it like wine lose, tasting? Is it a it bit is, like you that? lose your, you lose your taste. It's so sweet. And, and, so we try very hard then we'll probably get down to um, three will be knocked out and we'll be down to five. And then we'll look at the five and we might knock out another two and then we'll stay with three and make them again the following week. But one, one thing that actually keeps us laughing all these years is that once it goes into the no folder, it doesn't mean it's actually no. We've got definitely no, maybe no. <laughs> and, and so many recipes have been in the definitely no. And I used to spend hours going back trawling through them each time again and again maybe we should retry that and so many recipes even in this book didn't start in the yes folder they started in the no I think that's interesting because I think that's a little bit like books I think sometimes um how you feel about a book depends on where you are what you what the context is when you're reading it I know not so much now that I'm a professional reader but when I you know was just reading at night like everyone else are on holidays sometimes you can start a book when you're really tired and stressed and it, you just don't take to it at all, pick it up again later on holidays and you love it. So I understand that. Yeah, yeah. And it's so true. And when people ask, you know, how do you choose which recipe goes in, it's really, it depends on so many things. And one of them is how we're feeling and yeah. what we're doing. And and do we feel like another plum cake at that minute? And if not, it just might get overlooked and that's just the way it is. Lisa, you say, I think you said it earlier, that um, the Jewish community you describe as uniquely food obsessed. Why do you think that is? I think it's probably like any ethnic community, actually. I don't know that it's, you know, I'm sure I've got, you know, lots of Greek friends and Italian friends and say, no, no, we're the same, we're the same. And I don't know why it is. I don't know what the reason is, but I just know it's in our DNA. It's in the way I am. I don't remember ever learning it to that you equate food with love and you nurture with food. And if, and if someone's not well, you know, or, or someone passes away, the only thing to do is to make a cake or to make a pot of soup. Um, there's no other option. Um, you know, you don't send flowers when someone passes away in the Jewish religion and you go, um, what do you do instead? I mean, I feel like this is a bit, I'm not really, I mean, I don't know if it's a bit, sort of dishonouring um, the religious side of it. But it's sort of a funny story because when someone dies, um, you never send flowers. You would always, and you eat traditional food. So the family who are mourning eat things like boiled eggs and bagels that are circular and symbolise, um, you know, that life goes on and the cycle of life and that sort of thing. And then you have these prayers um, 
after the funeral and it's called a minion and people gather around and honestly the table of food at these minions is like nothing you've ever seen in your life and we joke that we should actually you know like the wedding crashes we should go around and and crash minions around the country because that's where you get the best food on display everyone puts brings their best you know the best apple cake maker will bring it and put it on the table um and that's actually, a sign of that's a sign that's of love. It, yeah. That's I that's mean, the nurturing and that's the love that's and that's right. the care. That's right. And there are two recipes in this book actually that came to me for the first time when my father passed away and and I was I was the mourner and people were bringing so much food to me which is just it's so soothing and it makes you feel loved and it makes you feel cared for and and so I remembered those dishes and then I went back, you know, a year later and said, "Okay, we need to talk about that." So maybe to the minion people could bring the recipe as well and that could be part of the gesture. (laughs) So good. (laughs) Lisa, I wondered if you you personally or any of the others in your group had particular food heroes. When you went into this venture, starting up and intending to make a cookbook, were there any cookbooks that you particularly loved? You you said you liked the look of the Neil Perry ones, Mm -hmm. but were there particular cooks whose uh, cooking you really loved? Were there particular cookbooks that you really loved and thought, yes, I'd like ours to be something like that? Yeah, we, we, the first book we really spoke about after the Neil Perry story was Bill Granger's books. And we started with those because they were the books that we um, had when we were in our 20s and, and starting out with our own families and that sort of thing. So they were really mm. special to us. And I think they're still, you can still go back to those books, um, you know, Sydney Food and, and Bill's Sydney. Um, but they're just iconic forever they're going to be good forever so that was probably the first slot and then when it came to actually um writing this book not writing I guess doing the styling and the design and stuff we had a pile of books on the table all the time for probably three years or two years and we were just looking at them and one of them was Matthew Evans winter was it called winter um and it's Alan Benson was the photographer and um it, it was just a book that you opened and you felt like you were there. You felt like you were in a wintry place and the recipes were just simple and beautiful and nourishing and it just ticked all the boxes for us. So we just looked at that all the time. And he's um, done some of your photography, hasn't he, Alan Benson? Yeah, Alan, yeah. Well, it's actually, um, there's actually a funny story about that. Can I tell the Alan Benson story? Please. Because it's, um, yeah, please. it shows a lot how, how we all grow over the years, but this was probably um, 2009. We had um, we couldn't find a publisher, interestingly, um, because they wanted to pigeonhole us into Jewish cooking, which we're not strictly Jewish cooking. Mm-hmm. Um, we're cooking from Jewish kitchens. It's completely different. Mm-hmm. And they said, "Look, there's already that Jewish book, so no, not going to publish." And we waited a year to get no's from three publishers, which was really heartbreaking at the time. So we decided to self-publish, which we did through Hardy Grant. Um, we they were fantastic, actually. We had to pay for it, which and we and we got money together, and we worked out that we only had to pay for the first down payment because by the time the last payment was due, the book had would already be out for a month, and we could sell enough to pay for it, and it worked out actually perfectly. And I'm no businesswoman, um, so we were sitting around. So so Hardy Grant put together a group, um, you know, photographer, stylist, the whole team. Um, editor and it was all they're all fantastic but we'd been sitting there ogling these books for all this this time and Alan Benson were, was in everyone right and the girl said to me go on 
call Alan Benson. And I said, no way on earth am I calling Alan Benson. He's this important photographer. Who are we? We're just these girls who can't even get published. No, I'm not ringing him. And I really refused. And they were saying, come on, come on. And I said, "Mm -mm, I'm not going to do it. Um, So (laughs) then I came across a friend of mine, um, uh, food food reviewer at the time, Simon Thompson. And I said to him, just tell him about the project. Didn't mention photographers. Didn't mention Alan Benson. And the next day, he sent me an email to me and to Alan saying, Lisa, meet Alan. Alan, meet Lisa. He's bloody good. She's bloody nice. You two should get together. And so then with shaking hands, and I'm not joking, I rang, like I was so nervous to call him. I called him up and we met for coffee and he said, yep, he'd love to do the book. And he's done all four books and he's really the brother in our sisterhood now. And you know. they are so gorgeous. The photography is just so yeah, beautiful. Yeah. There, um, something you said in an, in an interview once, which I really like to describe what it was like working with your um, the rest of the team. You said, it's like part marriage, part girlfriend, part work colleague. It's unique. I can't think of anywhere else that it's like that. We argue, we debate, we laugh and we cry. What makes you laugh? So many things. Um, so many things. I mean, I think... I think the arguments, I'm not allowed to call them arguments, the debates we have make me laugh and still actually make us laugh till today. The things we've been laughing about, for arguing about for 10 years, for example, when you uh, whisk egg whites and you fold them into the base for a chiffon cake or a mousse, do you use a metal spoon or a silicon spatula? I'm the silicon spatula side and Marilyn and Natanya are the metal spoon and we've been arguing about it ever since and every time we do a cooking demo or something and it comes up we just laugh stand there and laugh again and remember how it's so funny and and that's you know that's we have this camaraderie that uh, as I said in that interview I don't I don't know many groups that have that we've been together for 15 years Mm -hmm. without planning to like Jackie always says that she came in for one year to do the take minutes and do the filing because she had neat writing. And, you know, here she is 15 years later and she's like, how did I stay so long? Lisa, let's look at the other side. What makes you cry? Collectively. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Well, we all, we all go through sad things together. I mean, between us, um, you know, Marilyn's lost her mum at the beginning. I lost my dad two thirds of the way through you know, our kid, different kids have had different issues and we've all had, you know, people have had little health things. So stuff, things like that, because we come on a Monday and even though mm. I'm anxious to get us cooking quickly, um, there's always a little chat for, for 10 minutes about how the weekend was and then someone will say, well, this actually happened to me and we'll sit down and, and talk about it. Um, but even the other day, on, last, on Tuesday, we were having a Zoom meeting and you know, someone had an issue and we just spent like 45 minutes talking about that issue. And, and it was just, we, we don't take it for granted because it's a very special relationship. And, um, and I guess it's just evolved over time because we were originally six. And then after book two, um, two of the girls left because they had other things to do. Um, and none of us get paid for our time. So, you really have to be able to live without working really for the time that's needed. So they had to go and uh, Lynn came in for the third book and then she had to go and work again. So we're back to the original four. Because of course it's not just Mondays anymore. That's the joke, isn't it? It started out as the Monday morning cook, cooking club, yeah, but yeah. I imagine it's now pretty much five days a week, I would think. It is. Well, for me it is. For me it's five days a week because for me, um, 
like I feel like I live and breathe this project because not because I have to but because I love everything about it and I like I'm probably too obsessed with it like my kids have said to me over the years you know you love the cookbook more than you love me and I say actually I don't but I want you to know that I wish I wish for you that in your life you'll find something that is fulfilling as this is for me you know that's that's all you can ask for. Lisa, I know that you're a not-for-profit organisation and all the profits from the book sales go to selected charities. Would you like to tell us about some of the charities and how you selected them, how you do mm. select them? Yeah. Um, it's an interesting question because I try, I've try. i tried in the last few years to keep it quiet. I mean, not a secret, but to, it's never been... I, don't, I never want it in the forefront of an article about us that we're not-for-profit because I don't want people to buy the book because we're a not-for-profit. That's they what don't. I, don't, I don't want. I can assure you, know. you they don't. I I'm, I'm hope I haven't just given away yeah, any big yeah. secret, but no, I can assure you people buy the books because they're so beautiful. So thank you. But I, so, so the last few years, the story from me has always been that that is the icing on the cake. It's not the reason for doing it. Even though it was sort of the initial tiny reason, it really grew into something bigger than that. And so we we made ourselves a not-for-profit, so now it's out of our hands anyway. And, and we just, there's no, I mean, there's one Jewish charity that we are, that sell our books so that they they keep all the profits from the book and that's a nice way for them to make money. But we give lots away to charities for prizes and that sort of thing. And every so often when we've got the extra money, which, you know, book publishing, you don't really make a huge amount of money. The royalties aren't huge and it costs money to do it. Um, even though HarperCollins pay, pay a lot of it, it still costs money to run it. Um, so anything that's left, we see what we're feeling like that year and who we've been dealing with or what someone's gone through and we might give, we'll then give it to that charity. Lisa, the book, your first book, was a huge success not just in Australia but also in the United Kingdom and the United States. Was that a surprise for you women or did you always intend worldwide domination? Did you always <laughs> intend it to be sold overseas as well? Um, we always wanted it to be sold overseas, which is actually why we decided after the first book um, was custom published that we needed to go and find a proper publisher, not a proper, to find a publisher, publisher because it's impossible to get overseas with when you custom publish. You know, we don't have the channels and all that. So that's really why we stopped with Hardy Grant at that stage and found, Wait. thankfully, HarperCollins. Yeah, yeah. HarperCollins and Catherine Milne, who honestly, she just got us from the beginning and she has been amazing and such a support and she just understands everything we want to do. And that was a miracle really that we found her. It was just by a friend of um, actually um, Caroline who was in charge of our thing at Harper, at Hardy Grant. She introduced us to a guy at HarperCollins who told Catherine about it and that was how it started. So then once HarperCollins took over and they said they could, they didn't promise us that they could take it overseas, but they said they would try and do everything they could. So when they republished the first book in softcover and published the second book, they um, have this thing called Harper 360 where Australian titles are not sold into those um, countries, but they are actually, the Australian title is sold in those, you know, in the UK and the USA. I don't know actually how it works, except that we're not published by Harper US or mm. Harper UK. Um, and, you know, I think we went okay. I won't say it was a bestseller overseas. Um, we went to New York with the, with the first book and we tried to make our, make our way there and tried to make a, 
an impact in that market, but it's so huge and we're so little. It was impossible. I'm going to stop because there's something that I wanted to ask you about. I should have asked sooner, but you have a real reputation in the in the publishing profession for being known for working very, very hard, the group of you, working very hard to promote and sell your books. And I know that what you've done here is you've done uh, demonstrations in, in food shops, accoutrement and others. You've done live demonstrations in David Jones. I wanted to ask you about that aspect and how much you enjoyed the actual promotion and in particular doing in-store events like that. Yeah, most of it's been fantastic. I mean, we've had a few dud events like everybody does. Um, you know, where they put you in a bad corner of the department store and no one walks past and you're standing there with your tray of biscuits and there's no one there and it's really sad. And you feel and you, and you feel like you're, like, pushing your biscuits onto people, like, please eat one of my biscuits. And it's, it's actually disheartening, I have to say. And we leave those events feeling very sad. Um, but then we've had amazing things. And, and the thing that we do, and it's nice to hear that that's the word on the street about us because we, we have been working... So we work, I mean, I think about it 24-7, you know, what else can we do? What else can we do? How can we do this? What else? And we talk about it and we think plan and we use any ideas or contacts we have to get things done. And it's hard work, actually. Um, but it is, when the event is fantastic, it is it is the greatest joy. I remember the first one we did at David Jones for Christmas. It must have been 20... I don't know, 2013 maybe, with the first book when it was re, um, republished as a soft cover. And we stood in David Jones in Bondi and we made something in the store and the, the people were like swarms and swarms of people came and bombarded us and they sold, I don't know, 58 books in the night and they've never had that, you know. So that was amazing. That was the high. And then the low is the events you go to where we, where we schlep for, you know, 14 boxes of books and we sell three books and then we've got to schlep them home again. You know, that's, so we've had both. Um, so what did you do going over to New York? How were you able to promote it? Well, we actually did um, through a friend of a friend, which is often what happens. We got a gig at Italy's cooking school. I mean, exactly. Imagine that like us homegrown Sydney girls going to Italy. Just tell, tell, was, tell our listeners a bit about Italy in New York. Oh, so Italy is an amazing food emporium um, by a man whose name I shouldn't mention anymore, um, and Joe Bastianich, who is a great restaurateur in, in America. They put together this um, amazing food, Italian food emporium that's just beautiful in New York, and it's all over, actually. It's not just New York. And it's the sort of place you walk into and your eyes just, you know, you can't believe how many different types of cheeses and and beans and Brussels sprouts and breads and pastas and sauces and there's the pizza bar and the mozzarella bar and it's just amazing and they've got a beautiful cooking school. So they said, yes, we can do a thing at the cooking school and we had to send them a menu, which we did, and we weren't allowed to, anything we made was not allowed to be eaten by the people in the class. I mean, this is the United States, right? So their chefs had to cook our menu and we were allowed to demonstrate but no one could eat what we made and it's really funny because they just misinterpreted so many of our dishes that um it, they were like completely different I can't well, one of them was a the honey macadamia wafers from the first book which are a really thin wafer that you you know you have to smear the <laughs> see I'm getting all these Yiddish words out today you have to smear the um the batter thinly over baking paper and then you sprinkle it with nuts and chocolate and they did it like 
like super thick, like a, like I don't know what. And so we just couldn't believe it. But anyway, that was fun. Um, but I think the audience were um, made up of a lot of our friends' friends because we were so scared that no one would come that we sent the word out to anyone we knew that you've got to come to this event. But it was full and it was nice. Um, but I've got a funny story just if I can go forward a few years about events in America. So mm. we went with our um, third book. We decided to go again to LA this time. So we decided to go to Los Angeles rather than New York. New York was just too big for us and too hard. And I, I don't know how you crack that market, you know, unless you spend three months there and, and do a whole PR trail. But anyway, um, so LA we thought was easier. So we had this whole schedule and whatever, and we got through HarperCollins USA. They got us a gig on um, Hallmark TV's, one of their morning shows. And so it was actually the most amazing experience. They sent, firstly, they sent a limo to pick us up and we just felt like, you know, it was all happening. That was it. We didn't need anything else. We went to Universal Studios. We sat in this limo and, and I don't know if you've ever been to Universal, but they have these little trains that go around for the tour when you go on a tour there. And the train just went past our car and everyone's looking like, who are they? Who are they? And we're all waving like we're someone important. And that was hilarious. But then we go on the show and we've got our own trailer to get dressed in. And we felt very important for the day. And Did you and know the host? Like, Did you know the no, show or the host? No, not at all. Um, so we had a rehearsal. So we wore the dresses we were going to wear on the show and the shoes we were going to wear. We just, you know, dressed to, to go on. And we're standing in the rehearsal with the host and we went through the whole rehearsal and where we were going to stand. And she just looks at us and said, okay, so now are you ladies going to go and get dressed? <laughs> <laughs> oh dear <laughs> no but anyway but when we said no this is it no, this is but, it yeah and uh, and it was cool it was a good experience but it was a bit nerve-wracking um but it was a lot of fun and Lisa the book before that was the the feast goes on and that was you published that in 2014 again with Harper Collins yeah. and am I right in saying that was recipes from all so the first book had been recipes just from within the Sydney yes. Jewish community then this one was from recipes from all around Australia is that right yes yeah and when you add those up, including this one, which has been published in 2020, that's four cookbooks in nine years. That, to me, I know you're a mother of four children. That is almost like having four children in nine years, which is really yeah. quite remarkable. Not many people would produce that many cookbooks in that period of time. Did you ever mm. imagine when you started out that that's 10 years later you would have done four books? No, never for a minute. I mean, we just we just go along as we go along. You know, it, it's... It's like Jackie said, she came for a year and here she is. We don't think about it. We did the first and we were so thrilled with the first, um, really thrilled with the first. We loved it so much. And then we went on tour around Australia, uh, which was wonderful. We met so many people who said, we've got recipes, we've got recipes. And so then we thought, oh, we've got to go Australia-wide. So that's when we decided to do the second book. And then same with the third, we decided, well, we've got to go Sydney, Australia and the world. But the world's hard. Like I find even with the internet and, you know, finding people, I fi found collecting from Jewish communities around the world a hard job. Like how do you find people? How do you get in touch with them? I wrote to I think every Jewish organisation across the US and Canada to say, I know this is a weird email, but can you introduce me to someone who would know who the best cooks are in the community? I mean, it's a weird email. Mm. So unsurprisingly, I got three responses only. And, you know, it's like, oh, well, keep trying, keep trying. And we, we did. And we, we've got a beautiful collection. But it's by no means, you know, extensive and, and in the sense of the whole world. Like we couldn't get the whole world into our books. You couldn't. No. Lisa, in all of your books, 
the stories are almost as important as the recipes are. Mm. How important is it for you to tell the stories of your community? Mm. It's really, really important. Um, so much so. We've, we have had debates over the years. Do we stop telling the stories in this book? Do we, you know, do it differently? And, and, and we just get emails from people all the time that say they don't even cook, but they love the stories. And I, I think what I'm also proud of is that we've created like this snapshot of a community that people can read about. And it just gives little snippets of, of parts of how we live, the Friday night dinner, the importance of a grandmother, um, all that sort of thing that I think just makes people understand a little bit more about how we tick and, and what we are. And I, I think my aim really, one of my aims is to, is to, for the readers to actually read it and say, oh, I wish I had Friday night dinners. And my friend, my non-Jewish friends actually say that to me now. And I love that because it's, it's a thing to aim for. I'm going or to a ask, Sunday lunch. I'm going to, exp- I'm, I'm sure a lot of people know what the significance is of a Friday night dinner for yeah. people of the Jewish culture, but I'm sure quite a lot don't. Could you tell us about the Friday yeah. night dinners? So um, Saturday is the Sabbath and it's supposed to be the day of rest. I'm not religious at all. I am just traditional. So we don't see it as a different day. But the Friday night dinner is, is sort of the eve of the Sabbath where you're all supposed to gather with your family and you light candles and you eat challah, which is the the, the egg the egg-enriched sweetened plattered bread. And you have a sort of not a feast, but a pretty good meal. And you sit around either family or family and friends. Um, a lot of the South African community who came without family now have their Friday nights with a whole bunch of friends and they've become family. Um, so it's a very lovely time. And growing up, I knew that I wasn't allowed to go out on Friday nights. It wasn't a night I could go. I had to stay home and have dinner with the family. It wasn't even a question. And my kids are the same. Um, Although it does get difficult now, you know, they're working and they've got Friday night drinks in the office and I don't want them to miss out on that. So I have to be careful. I don't want to dilute the Friday night thing, but I don't want them to miss out on that important part of growing up, I guess, in the workforce. And it's an occasion for different generations of the family to get together, yeah. isn't it? That yeah. seems to me to be just so significant. That's right. And and there's all, I mean, there's going to be um, three generations at least at the table in most families and it's really beautiful and the food is so important again. You know, that's almost um, the biggest thing about it for so many families because they have the same thing all the time. Like I make for my family, um, I alternate with my sister-in-law. I have one Friday, she has the next with the whole family. And it can be anywhere from, you know, 10 to 17, depending on who, who's around and who's not. And I always make egg and onion every single week, every single week I have it. And that is my family's dish. Now, my mother used to make it for our Friday nights and she was taught by, actually, it's a funny story. She was, it was a recipe that came from my father's mother and my father's mother, um, they had a lady who helped them in the house. Her name was Pat. She was amazing. And Pat learnt from my father's mother how to make egg and onion and then Pat came to work in our house and Pat taught my mother how to make it and taught me how to make it and it's a special way of making it and I still I still make it the same way and I still think of Pat and I think of my mum and I think of the heritage that it brings but what's amazing is that now so many people around the world make you know my family's egg and onion like imagine that imagine Amen. that hmm. Lisa, let's move to talk now about this gorgeous book, Now for Something Sweet. You start, or one of the opening lines for that is you say, there's something about the Jewish community and cake 
What is it? I don't know what it is. I think, I think because people, I think it's a sign of love. Like I said earlier, I think it's something, it's very easy to, to make a cake and give it to someone. It doesn't matter if they eat meat or they don't. It doesn't matter if they like this or that. Everybody likes a cake. And I think it's been part of the way Jewish mothers and aunties and grandmothers have shown love to their families. I can't think of any other reason other than that's what it shows. And that's what it shows to me. You know, I think I remember when I was first married, I used, or when I first had kids, I remember thinking, I don't even know where I got this thought from, but how nice it would be to always have a cake on the counter when my kids came home from school. Now, my mum, who was a doctor, never had a cake on the counter. So I don't know where I even learnt that from. So maybe it's just in my soul. I don't know. It's funny. What is it, do you think? And as I say, you're talking to a baker. I absolutely love baking. It's one of my favourite pastimes. What is it that makes baking so enjoyable, do you think? For me, it's actually the how you can take things that are so simple, flour, butter, sugar, ingredients that are just so plain on their own and put them together and create this magnificent chiffon cake. Like, And I look at these cakes that come out of the oven, I'm like, how did that happen? It's like because alchemy, I, right? It is. It's a miracle actually sometimes when you bake something and it's just so remarkable and the texture's so unbelievable and you, I just I go, what a miracle. So for me, I love that part of it, um, of creating something from nothing almost from and, and creating something that makes people happy. I mean, everyone loves cake. Something that I feel too, and I was wondering if you shared this, is it, it is quite a calming, meditative thing to do to bake that's certainly how I mean apart from the fact that I have a sweet tooth and I like to be Mm, uh, I like to eat the finished product and to test a bit along the way Mm. but the actual process I find quite meditative do you Mm. find that as well I do some some parts of it I mean I love um you know whisking egg whites and then folding them in you know that's a beautiful thing isn't it just the way you go around the bowl and across the top and it's just quiet and lovely and and I love things like that and I also like um making biscuits and standing there when I've got time, you know, you can't do it in a rush, but we've got a few biscuits in the book, in, in this book particularly, that are a little time-consuming. Um, there's a recipe from my late mother-in-law for, they're called almond butter biscuits, and they're like little tiny bagels. And um, I used to, I remember eating them at, when I first met my husband and I used to go to their house and she had this giant, giant jar of them in the kitchen, giant jar. And every time everyone else was upstairs and I was in the kitchen, I would sneak a handful and I'd probably eat six or seven and because they're so Moorish and so good. And then she she passed away and I never got the recipe from her, which is really sad, but my sister-in-law luckily had it. Um, and I had to really tweak and play with that recipe to get it right because there were no instructions. You know, wow. it was impossible, but, but I got it in the end. But the other day I made a batch and it takes time. And I just stood there pulling off the, the dough, rolling it, kneading it in your hands, making the little um, little snake, rolling, you know, joining the ends and putting it on the tray. And then you just repeat, repeat, repeat. But I have to say when I made another batch the next day, because my husband ate the whole first batch because they were like his mother's, um, I decided to look for a shortcut, which I found. So sometimes you don't want to stand there for hours rolling them. But and the shortcut was that I divided the dough I weighed it, I divided it into six pieces and then I worked out that each piece needed 10 and I made a sausage and rolled, cut it into 10 and then I had to, it was just easier and quicker. So 
but it is a nice thing to stand and do that. And when you eat those, do they remind you of your mother-in-law? And they when do. you're back in your twenties, it's putting your hand in they a jar really in her do. kitchen. Mm. Yeah, they really do. Which and I love, I love how food can do that. And I hear it all the time when we put a recipe on Instagram, for example, people say, you know, it reminds me of of my grandmother or my auntie in wherever used to make that. And it takes them back somewhere. And it's so powerful that a, that a picture of food can do that. Lisa, the book is full of the most wonderful selection of biscuits, slices, pastries, cakes. What's your favourite thing to bake and why? Hmm... Or is it too hard to choose? It's too hard to choose. I think at the moment, like it changes every week. Um, At the moment, I made uh, last week the poppy seed brioche, which is our cover girl cake. And what I loved about it is you make a brioche dough and the dough is so soft, like like a baby's bottom, really so soft and so, um, so beautiful to hold in your hands and then rolling it. And I'm just standing there going, oh, my God, how did I make this? How did this come out of, you know, flour and butter? It's unbelievable. And then I love poppy seeds. It's my, I don't know what it is. I don't know. I think it's my DNA also that I got a love for poppy seeds and the way you have to cook them and they're ground and you cook them with milk and sugar and sultanas and it and it reduces down to this lovely, thick, pasty mixture of poppy seeds and then you roll it in the brioche and, just love it. Just love it. So that's my number one today. But next week I'll have a different one. Lisa, all of the recipes have a really beautiful story attached. There were just a couple I wanted to to ask you about. You mentioned the chiffon cake and I'm glad that you did because, as I say, mm. I'm a very keen baker but I've never made a chiffon cake. So I wondered what is a chiffon cake and why is it called that? Mm. Um, so chiffon cake, I actually don't know why it's called a chiffon. Maybe because it's so, so light. So light. Um, it's made with separated eggs, so you have to whisk the egg whites, and it generally doesn't have butter. So it's generally an oil cake. Um, there's an angel cake, which is a sort of same genre, but angel cakes actually don't usually have fat at all. But this one has oil, and it is made, you make the, the base batter, and then you fold in the egg whites, and then you bake it in the oven in a special tin called an angel cake tin. We call it a chiffon tin, which has to be not non-stick it can't be it has to be aluminium or whatever it can't be non-stick because because when you pull it out of the oven you need to put it upside down invert it onto a bottle or onto its legs um most they all have little legs little metal legs that you tip it upside down on but i find that if you're making a really big cake the it's the legs aren't high enough so you put it on a bottle but it's really important to measure your bottle in the funnel before you put it in the oven. Um, so you, you take it out of the oven, you put the bottle in straight away and you invert it and then you leave it on the bench to cool. So it, the typical thing is that you cool it upside down so that it keeps its height. Um, and it is the most beautiful cake. It is has a texture like nothing else and it is so easy to make. I mean, I remember, my, you say you've never made one, but I'll tell you that once you start, it will become your go-to. Okay. I remember, I'm talking like... 28 years ago, my friend Lindy, whose cake is in the first book, Chocolate Chiffon, I, I rang her in a panic one day. I said, oh, my God, I need a cake, like, in an hour, in two hours. What am I going to make? What am I going to make? She said, make the chiffon. I said, I don't know how. I'm scared. Anyway, she gave me the recipe. She talked me through it. And it does become a go-to cake. The only thing is you have to let it cool completely before you take it out of the tin. And it doesn't collapse when you put the, the icing's not too heavy? No. Well, you know what, we've got a honey chiffon cake in the book that's very delicate. So you need to ice it 
at the last minute because otherwise it does weigh down, but generally not. They're quite robust. Lisa, tell us the story of that. Um, Marilyn's mother, Yolan's custard chiffon mm. cake. There's something special yeah. about that recipe. Tell us about yeah, that. It really is. And Marilyn just tells the story so beautifully. And I've heard it so many times over the years. I, I want to keep hearing it. I love the way she tells it, but I'll tell it in my way. And I'm sorry, Marilyn, it's not as, it's not as beautiful as the way you tell it. But um, her mother was from Perth, as Marilyn was, and she used to make this custard chiffon cake when the kids were, their kids were growing up. And Marilyn remembers going home from kindy and sitting on the kitchen counter and being given a slice of yellow cake that they called it. And then Marilyn grew up, moved to Sydney, and her mum used to come over and they would have cooking sessions together and she would video it. And we started writing the book around sort of the last few years of her mum's life. And Marilyn said, please, can we have the custard chiffon recipe? And her mother said, I'm not going to give it to you because I make it for all these um, charities in Perth. And if I share it with you, then everyone else will make it. And it's my thing. And I don't want it not to be my thing anymore. Um, she was very generous with her cake, just didn't want to share the recipe. And Marilyn tried every time she visited, come on, please, mum, can we have it? Can we have it? No, no, no. Then we had another lady in the book called Eva Grunstein, who happened to be uh, Yolan's neighbour back in um, Hungary now, I think, or Romania. You know, the, the borders changed. And Marilyn said, you know, we've got Eva's orange chiffon cake in the book and the girls think it's a 10 out of 10. Will you reconsider giving us your chiffon cake? And her mother looked at her and said, um, okay, I'll give it to you. And Marilyn said, that's wonderful. And, and then she said, you know, I just hope in her beautiful Hungarian accent, which I'm not even going to attempt, she said, you know, I hope the girls will say my cake is an 11 out of 10. <laughs> I and sad, sadly, her mum passed away before the book was published, which, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a bit sad because that cake is probably the iconic cake of the Monday Morning Cookie Club, which is why it's in the first book and the fourth book, because it's, it's unique, it's special, um, it has such a story to it and it means so much to so many people. And now it's being baked all over the world, which is an extraordinary thing. And imagine if her mother would have seen that. You know, let's hope she's looking down and smiling. One of the really striking things about these recipes, and I'm sure it's the same, well, I know it's the same in your other books, is that, well, the previous one anyway, that the recipes really do come from all over the world. When you read the stories here, they've come from Russia, North Africa, Israel, South Africa, Buenos Aires, Los Angeles, Czechoslovakia, Germany, Hungary, all over the world. Is there something that they all have in common? Is there something distinctive about Jewish baking? Do you think that somehow unites them all in some way? Is there some, yes, is there some feature that they all share? I think for a lot of the older generation that we've come across, um, there is so many of the, the pastries that they brought with them from, you know, Eastern Europe and, and that sort of thing are so particular, you know, with sour cream, with, um, lots of butter with the way they made them you know we're all so nervous and you know every cookbook tells you you mustn't do this and you must do that must, you know they're so particular and they're also relaxed I've been to I've had the privilege actually in honor of going to a few of their houses and standing in their kitchen with them and watching them make their pastry the way they do it and it, I mean to be able to do that is, is is an incredible experience and I just remember, you know, we're so worried about the butter temperature and it needs to be this and it needs to be that. And this one lady, Lena, who's just my hero in the book, she passed away last year at the age of 100. Um, 
she said, oh, I didn't take the butter out. So she puts it in the microwave. It's half melted. It didn't matter. She had egg yolks in the fridge that, um, you know, had probably been there for a good few days because they were almost solid. She just scooped them out with a spoon and put them in. And she made the most amazing um, strudel biscuits called Kindlech, which are like this um, beautiful pastry with sultanas, nuts, chocolate and cinnamon and it's rolled up. It's 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 just fantastic. And we've got a new version of that biscuit in our in this book actually, Kindlech. So I think all those women and what they used to do is they used to make four times as much as they needed and they would then put it in the freezer. So I think the idea was and we hear that again and again and again. And we almost wonder, um, you know, every time your recipes say put it in the fridge overnight. Um, and you really don't need to before you, know, you cook it, it you mean before you it. yeah, before you roll it. They often say that with biscuits, don't they? Put them in, or put them in the fridge for a couple of hours before you cook yeah, them. Yeah, that's right. So all these pastries came to us with put in the fridge overnight and we just thought, do you really need to and or, or freeze or whatever it was? And we decided that we think that they just used to make lots of it and the idea was that they would live in the freezer and then when they knew someone was coming around or they needed to make a batch of something delicious, they would just put, they'd always have one in the freezer. Um, so I think that the, overall they're, re- they're resourceful they're not precious about their ingredients and that's something we see a lot from that older generation. But, but the different, I mean, the Eastern Europeans are so different to, to all the South Africans who have given us amazing recipes. It's a completely different world. Um, you know, and then there's the people from, from Asia and from India um, that have come down with really fantastic recipes that come from the different world. Like, you know, there's the Ashkenazi side and there's the Sephardi side of the Jewish community. And, you know, one's spice and exotic and the other one is, you know, fried onions and, um, which is me, you know, fried onions and potatoes. Um, that's very generally speaking. But, you know, they're so different, the worlds. So it's hard to say what they've all got in common except that they all love feeding their families. You once featured in one of those My Day on a Plate interviews <laughs> in a Sunday newspaper. You said what you ate and a dietitian or nutritionist analysed it. I won't go through what you ate, but I love the way there were things like two tablespoons of chocolate cake. Anyway, <laughs> one piece of advice, feedback that she gave you, Lisa, was eat sweet treats no more than twice a week. What do you think of that advice? Look, in a, you know, in an ideal world, sure. But in reality, no way. Like that's just not going to happen. I mean, it's just not going to happen. I mean, I think... I understand that the concept that people need to eat healthy, like to have five five days of healthy eating and two days to go all out. But I think, you know, the week should be dotted with sweet things throughout. You know, even if it's just a couple of little biscuits one day and a slice of cake the next. The problem is, though, when I want to eat half the cake, you know, when you just can't stop and it's too good. You know how you start, you even up the cake? Do you remember that sitting around the table where there's a cake and you just cut off? No, it's not straight. It's not straight. And before you know it, yes. you've eaten a quarter of the cake. That's right. I'm not going to eat that whole slice. I'm just <laughs> going to have half of it and then I'll just take That's another right. sliver. Lisa, just a couple of questions I want to ask you about <laughs> releasing a book in the time of COVID-19. It's very difficult. Um, what have you been doing to promote this book and what there are so many things that you can't do or you haven't been able to do. Mm-hmm. What can you do? How, how can you be innovative and think of different ways to get the word out there? It's, it's, our tour was 
we were in the middle of our tour, the start of our tour. We're in Perth, actually. We'd done Sydney and we're in Perth. And I remember it was my birthday, the 12th of March. And that was the day we made the decision to to pull the plug on the rest of it, which was a few days ahead of everybody else, I think, because when we called people, they were surprised that Mm -hmm. we were pulling the plug. And I remember I love jam donuts. The girls bought me a jam donut for my birthday and I'm sitting there in Perth on the street. We're eating this jam donut and just feeling so miserable and and I love, and it didn't make me happy, the donut, which never happens, you know. And and so we just pulled ourselves together and looked at it. And at that time, we all thought we were going down the Spain and Italy road. And we thought, you know, doomsday ahead. And we were all sad and worried and stressed. And we pulled the plug on the rest of the tour and came home to, to Sydney. And what do you do? You've missed the opportunity to meet people and talk to people in bookshops and cooking demos and all that. And, it, and it's sad. But I think there's definitely there is always a silver lining in every bad situation, I think, at some point. And this, you know, it's a terrible, terrible world situation. But in Australia, we're so incredibly lucky that we've had opportunities. It's actually brought opportunities for a lot of people. And we've just tried to embrace the online world. I mean, we were, we were actually always doing Facebook lives. We love doing those because we love talking to whoever's in our community out there. I don't mean the Jewish community. I mean the cooking community. Um, So we just have started doing more of that and we're going to keep doing more of it because to stand and even on a Zoom webinar and have 100 people um, listening, typing questions. I mean, last night I did an event for a school where they invited 75 grandparents to cook with their grandchildren on Zoom and they delivered um, 75 packages of the cheesecake ingredients and oh, I was asked oh. to lead the demonstration. And they were actually, it was a Zoom one, so I could see everybody. And it was just like, I can't even describe that, it. Uh, that the is feeling of that. amazing. It, it was like they're in my kitchen with me. I did it with Lauren, one of the original girl, Monday Morning Girls. It was just extraordinary. And I don't, that wouldn't happen before. That wouldn't have happened before. We wouldn't have had that experience. So I've had hundreds of people in my kitchen this last week. And it's been remarkable. Some are easier to have in your kitchen than others, though, I've got to say. So Some I are want, more challenging. I wondered with the Monday morning meetings, are you all still meeting up on Zoom and cooking in your own kitchens yes. on a Monday morning? No, because we're not cooking together at the moment because we're not, we don't have a goal for a new book at, at this point. Um, we don't have a contract with a publisher for a new book and we haven't really even thought about it yet. That's maybe next year's thought. Um, So, no, we're not cooking together. We're all cooking separately and ringing each other for advice all the time. Like Natanya just messaged me before saying, can we have this cheesecake and how long would you cook it for? So we have conversations like that. But, no, we're just meeting now to talk about what we're going to do next um, and and what we need to, how we can keep promoting the book. And I think think what's been good about... um, if there is a positive from coronavirus, is that people are home and they're cooking again who weren't people who weren't cooking. People that are scoving, I know there's a whole sourdough movement, I know there's a whole baking movement that's sort of relaunched itself. And it's wonderful to be part of that. And every time I see someone post um, one of our cakes or things on Instagram, it, it's joyful for us. It really is a joy. Lisa, that's a lovely note to end on. It's an absolutely gorgeous book. Congratulations. Be assured that you are bringing joy to many, many hearts. Thank you, Nicole. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabberty.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. 
You can also find me, Nicole Aberdeen, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. Since it's a new podcast, it would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon.